Hello, thanks for tuning in to another Cleveland Viewer Books podcast. This is Billy Lennon. Um, in this episode, I interview Philip Metris, um, who has a book coming out on Friday, April 24th, called Shrapnel Maps. And you can find a review of that book on our website by Jay David, our poetry editor. So Philip Metris is the author of 10 books, including Shrapnel Maps. Um, his other works include The Sound of Listening, which is a book of essays, Pictures at an Exhibition, Translation, I Burned at the Feast, Selected Poems of Arseny Tarkovsky, and Sand Opera. His work has garnered fellowships from the Lannan Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts, as well as six Ohio Arts Council grants, the Hunt Prize, the Adrian Rich Award, two Arab American Book Awards, etc., and now at Guggenheim, and he's a professor at John Carroll University in University Heights in Cleveland, Ohio. This was a very interesting conversation which covered the ground from politics to representation, form, and poetics. So hope you enjoy the episode. All right. <clears throat> I'm here with Philip Metris, um, a professor of um, poetry and creative writing in English at John Carroll University. Uh, was actually my coworker briefly, <laughs> but um, he also just won a Guggenheim Fellowship and just is about to have published um, his um, book of poems, Shrapnel Maps, which uh, uh, Jeremiah J. David reviewed for us. Um, and it got a lot of attention, the article. So, but anyways, we're joined by Phil Metris. Um, thanks so much for coming on the CRB podcast. How's it going? Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be joining you on this uh, sunny day in Cleveland. I'm glad that the sun is back. Oh yeah, absolutely. It it, it was um for people listening in New York or LA, like it was snowing a couple of days ago. And then like the very next day, like we're like at least at my fam family's house, we're like swimming, like yeah. you know, and uh, people are coming over. As I said, uh, Phil is about to have out of um. Copper Canyon Press released uh, Shrapnel Maps, which um, there it is. <laughs> How would you um, best describe the book to our listeners? Uh, well, Shrapnel Maps is a book that takes the reader on a journey alongside uh, myself as I come to engage with and imagine and experience different elements of the Israel-Palestine predicament. And what I mean by that is um, I take the reader through various uh, experiences that some of which I've gone through and some of which I've imagined, some of which I've researched and some of which I've engaged in through interviews um, as, as, I was, as I was trying to understand um, not only the origins of the conflict there, but also um, the predicament in which people find themselves who, who live there or who have once lived there. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, the blurb says that it is shrapnel maps is a dream of a new past calling on an ancient future. Yeah. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, I think that one of the things the book is trying to do is to excavate the palimpsests of time of, yeah. of, of stories and of peoples as they've inhabited that place. Um, um, so that's central to what the book is trying to do. 
Yeah, in the review, Jay David mentioned a woman named Muriel Rook Eiser, who was a noted documentarian poet. It sounds like, but how would you, um, would you uh, identify with that label to some extent? Not to fully label, but a documentarian poet? Because it's similar to Svetlana Alexievich. I don't know, like, versus that's just interviews, but. Sure. Like you're channeling. I actually deeply admire Svetlana Alexeyevich, uh, her approach, um, in which, as a writer, what she's doing is basically listening. Um, in every single one of her books, what's happening is she's elevating or amplifying or putting forward voices of people who've had profound and sometimes traumatic experiences, whether it's in Chernobyl, whether it's during World War II, whether it's in the early post-Soviet period. And uh, to me, like my, my book of essays that came out in 2018 was called The Sound of Listening. From CSU, right? Uh, that one was from Michigan. Michigan? Okay. Uh, yeah. And, you know, in many respects, I feel like what I'm trying to do as a writer and as an artist is to center voices that have been typically marginalized in a way that Alexeyevich is also doing. Um, and the, the, and, and Rukeyser for that matter, uh, Rukeyser is one of my heroes, particularly the poem, The Book of the Dead, which came out in um, a book called US One. It's a long poem of many parts in which she explores and investigates the silicosis disaster in uh, Golly Bridge, West Virginia, back in the 30s. She had gone with a documentary photographer with the intent that they would produce some sort of film um, about what was happening. And it, the film never happened, but her poem happened. And yeah. uh, in, in many respects, some of her techniques, the use of found materials, the employment of collage, which is a typical modernist technique to connect the imagination with the factual um, is, is part of my procedure and process. You know, in this book, you'll find um, maps of the land. You'll find old postcards. You'll find paintings. You'll find photographs. You'll I find loved photos. all those. I, I took pictures of all of them and just put them in my Microsoft Docs. Like the Come to Palestine, uh, like note cards. And yeah. there was, I think, for part seven, like a collage type thing going on. Um, exactly. I really, I really like how you structured the book. I actually wanted to ask before going into like a few specific formal questions uh, about the the book. As I said, there are two. We were talking beforehand. I think that there are two tendencies within the review of book, like reviewing books and artist community. One is to like take someone, someone writing about somewhere else. And just being like, oh yeah, I'm reading about that experience. And I'm just, once I do that, I have that experience internalized forever. And I understand that place. That's it. Like, instead of, you know, what you would do for the Western canon, which is like, look at it on that level, but then also on like a formal or aesthetic level, like, and appreciating it for it's like, you know, it's what it's bringing to the table and pushing the boundaries in terms of like, modern or postmodern art or something like this the other tendency is to valorize like the single author figure because like we said like you, you want a guggenheim it validates you but like 
the end of the story can't just be like a picture of Phil Metris, like next to like a really cool book, like cover, which is what most people will do. And then they'll be like, yeah, like that, that's the end of the story. We have this. And most people probably, you know, you'd hope that people read it. I, we have a great poetry community in Cleveland, but that's just like always, um, that's always the thing that gets to me. Actually critically engaging with the text in such a way that implicates your own politics and worldviews being open to change rather than staying at a distance and being like, this is happening there. Anyways, uh, let's stick with that. So how, how would you, you know, since we are reading this as a, as seriously as we would a Western text or so to speak, you know, even though you're established, um, how, how do you transpose that conflict onto like everyday life in America? Or, I mean, there, or even Cleveland, especially during the coronavirus epidemic, you know? Sure, sure. I mean, you've nested about four different interesting questions all at once, so I'm <laughs> going to try to figure out the best way to answer it. I mean, the first thing that you've brought up is that there is a politics of representation that is, um, and what that means is that whenever we depict any place, we need to account for our own positionality relative to that place and the power dimensions that might be um, sort of inflected in that representation. So what does it mean for me as an American to be writing about, even if I'm Arab American, to be writing about uh, Israel-Palestine is to ask a further question, which is to say, how have representations damaged, erased, um, stereotyped, uh, done incredible damage to Jews, to Israelis? Jews, in, you know, as a, as a big category, to Israelis as, as part of that category. Historically. Throw Orientalism by Edward Said. Into and the, then how, exactly, yeah. and how Arabs have as well um, been uh, erased in, as, as said, Said so eloquently and piercingly explored in, in Orientalism. So we have anti-Semitism on the one hand and Orientalism on the other, which has been not... Um, you know, impacted on the level of knowledge as well as the, on the level of bodies and, and, and stories. And so I, I was very, very um, concerned that I would not do justice to the complexity of those stories. I was very concerned I wouldn't do justice to the complexity of those stories and the realities of those people. And what that meant is that um, I spent a lot of time thinking about its reception as the book was in the last year of its revision and wondering what people would think about it. Did, was I fair in my depictions of Israelis and Palestinians in their um, multifaceted um, existences? And I uh, just, I wanted to share something really personal with you, which was last night I had a, a bad dream. It was, an, it was a nightmare in fact. Wow. That I, um, I had something um, in my house that incriminated me that was dangerous and um, the police were after me and wow. and I, I had to escape I had to leave the police and the military actually were after me wow and, and a friend of mine named Adam Saul shout shout out to Adam, Adam Yo, is a friend of the pod <laughs> okay Adam, Adam is a poet um, who lives in Toronto with his wife who's a rabbi and Adam and I uh, have had conversations over the years and he's been uh he just 
always brings a really keen insight, not only to poetry, but also to scripture and Jewish experience. And um, he, he actually had a car and uh, he was, I asked him for a ride to get out of the situation. I thought it was really interesting. <laughs> so he could psychoanalyze me to death. But the point is that as a writer and as an artist and as a human being, I was really um, concerned about not dehumanizing and uh, even though I, you know, I might have my political points of view, that, that the work of the book was to engage uh, people in the exploration of the complex humanity of two peoples yeah. who have profound disagreements about the nature of reality. You can never have an artwork that's just A equals A. As soon as you, I mean, it's just never going to. Right. You can't, you can't do it. Like, that's true. You're never going to ap- absolutely represent it 100%. That's true. Yeah, I mean that's. But the, but the work. But also, and- but also, let me let me um let me try to psychoanalyze your dream real quick. I think that it's just because you went to Holy Cross College and work at a Jesuit school and feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Oh, uh, there's guilt for sure. I, a- I feel it all the time. Yeah, <laughs> Catholicism is very intense. It's like I've like labeled myself like post-Catholic before. Yeah. But then you never tether yourself off. But it's so intense and you have to do it. But then I'm like, please, I have to become like Hindi or like, you know, do Shintoism or something to balance it. Because it's like, anyways, we're getting off topic. I don't, back to what I you think, were I don't think you are because I think there is something kind of Catholic about the book in the sense that I really do feel a kinship to um, Palestinians and Israelis, to Arabs and Jews not only because of my background, my, that my father's um, Lebanese, he's Arab American, um, but also because the structuring kind of sense of reality that I received in my formation as a person and as a spiritual person um, always comes from the feeling that everybody is sacred and that everybody is, is, is actually kin. Um, so I don't think it's too far off to, to you know, and that guilt is pro- is partly in the recognition of our, the human dimensions of our failing to see that kinship. Spinoza, one substance, you know, right. um, or like, um, when I'm praying for my neighbor, I'm praying for myself, you know? Right. Um, yeah, it, it, exactly. It fits into like the philosophical stuff as well. Sure. It just, it, it, I just really, you know, find it. I find philosophy really annoying because you try to like fit these complex categories and like distill the essence and like, <laughs> like that. I mean, I think continental is a little bit better, but I, anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was, that was a great answer. Well, um, uh, so another, another question about your poetics, which you, you kind of got into is just the form of the book. And I want to bring up two things here. You, you've structured it into, Correct me if I'm wrong, like somewhere between like seven and nine sections, um, each with a title. Um, and above each line, you have like, like the second of like the two parentheses. And on a few different pages, um, you have like a poem on like the left hand side. And then you have in the Arabic what that word means. And that's like the poem. So I think that that's really interesting. I'm thinking specifically of, you know, I, I, I marked it on the PDF that I didn't, I didn't print it or anything. 
but do you know what pages I'm talking about? Like where you have like the list and then the error, sure, sure. right? So yeah. could you talk about maybe, you know, some of those, um, what, what you were trying to do, to do with that? And that, that relates also, because you spent a lot of time in Russia as well, right? I did, yeah. So like you are like this confluence of languages and understand these code switches. And when you're giving form to something, what's the best way language to give it in and what's there's this conglomeration of languages so that's another tangled up question the, the, sure. um so like form and la language and right yeah so what, what do you well the specific poem pages that you're referring to are in a, a sequence called a concordance of leaves and that is the first like big long poem in the book um and it's the it's in a way tells the story of the wedding of my sister to a man named Majid in the little village of Tura Garibia, which is in the West Bank near Janine. And um, when I was there, you know, although I didn't learn much Arabic growing up, um, I was just soaking it in. And, and so one of the things I wanted to do in this long poem, which is a celebration of this wedding, was also have some pages that depicted me sort of coming to learn different parts of the language that I hadn't um, known. And, and within those, you know, like if you've ever been in another country, you, you might've like started keeping lists of phrases that you wanted to use. And so these are in a way kind of versions of those, but they read as poems as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, the one on page 20 goes today, Ayum, my friend, Sadiqi. Sweet, beautiful, halwa, tree, shajara, forbidden, haram, my name is ismi, listen, isma, uh, it means yani, here, han. And so it, it reads as a sort of like a, a, a poem, a found poem. So like, I'm sure people have done stuff like that before, but it's just so formally innovative. Like, I don't know, I like kind of valorized the mid-century 20 mid 20th century poets like Hart Crane and like Wallace Stevens. Sure. I used to be really into poetry back in the day. I used to correspond with Mark Strand actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. And he told me like, your poems are good, but you're just rimbowed right now. Like <laughs> you don't have a voice. You don't have a voice. Like uh, right. rest in peace, Mark Strand. Yeah. No, yeah. And it's just, but it's so formally innovative going through it that I'm just like, yeah, yeah. I feel like, you could open up to any page and just get something from it. Like I know that there are stories and they begin and end, but also right. stories don't start at the beginning and they don't end at the end. Right. And the same way that I like, you know, I'll pick up the Haga Curry and just like read a passage and it's like, Oh yeah. Like, I, I don't know. There are some books like that that, For contain, sure. that contain like worlds. Right. Like, well, I, I, I want to quote, if I can quote myself for a second here, one of the things that I said, I've said before is I'm seeking form. And I do believe a poem should be uh, beautiful or truthful or both. And it should announce itself as being in another register of language and a language like architecture, or maybe a language like living architecture. Um, language coming apart and together. And I think of like La Sagrada Familia as a sort of like slow motion version of that architecturally. Wow. And I think, yeah, and just to, just to point out something about the structure of the book, and I think you're right, that the book 
doesn't simply provide a linear arc or narrative. Um, I have structured the book in a way that invites the reader into a kind of a journey. And in some ways, I want to suggest to you that it's a backward journey into time. And, backward uh, journey into time. Yeah, it is. I mean, like it starts off in, in my, my present tense in my neighborhood here in University Heights, which is a predominantly Jewish Orthodox neighborhood. I know it, Green Road, yeah. around there. Right. And, um, and then it goes, in, it, goes us, uh, it goes back to the early 2000s for this wedding in the West Bank. It's also temporal. It's a temporal um, movement backwards through time, but it's also a spatial... Um, a spatial movement, and so one section is is like uh, in, you know in the um, early to mid two thousands in the West Bank. The next big long section is in um, Israel proper uh, theater of operations, which would have been um, you know probably around two thousand. Then uh, the section after that, the long section, kind of oscillates between my neighborhood and. And these ancient maps, um, which uh, depict the land in various ways. And, and then the last sort of really, well, I guess there are two more sections. Um, there's a section that goes to 1948 in Jaffa or Yaffa. Um, and then finally, we go to Gaza. So I guess it's not exactly a, a, um, backwards time, but there is this kind of sense that we're moving further and further into um, into deep into sort of deep temporal um, sort of moments that 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 you can't necessarily see when you first arrive at a place or you first yeah. come to understand uh, a place. I think one of my old professors, Claire Solomon, who's on our advisory, which I'm going to invite you to join, <laughs> honestly. But she said that like reading deep theory is like scuba diving, you know. Uh, and I think that like reading poetry should be like that as well. And, uh, or you, you know what I mean? The, like what the, the conversation we're having right now is exactly the one I want to be having because it's kind of like freeing your poem from like, or sorry, your, your book from being another thing put on like a shelf, you know, and not that it would, it, it, it it's going to get read obviously, but I don't think in any other way we'd be having these sort of like theoretical discussions about aesthetics and politics regarding it, or it could happen, but it's like N plus one's not going to do it. Like you're, it's just, we're in Cleveland, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, like it's true that um, when one writes in poetry, uh, one is selecting a rather small audience as Dickinson said, the soul selects its own society, then shuts the door. Um, yeah, but, uh, and, you know, being from the Midwest, you know, not being in a center of power, that, that, that. Where are you from? I'm from Ch the Chicago area, but I mean, you know, like being here, like I've been here for 20 years, so. Yeah. Like home. Um, but that being said, so one of, one of my jobs as a writer is uh, to figure out how to engage with people. And so I'm, I'm grateful for this chance to be talking with you about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I also just want to, uh, you know, one of the things I'm working on actually is um, a project where we would be using this text as a way of helping high school teachers teach about the conflict. And um, yeah. 
provide a, like a teacher's guide for how you would teach um, a complicated, a, a controversial subject such as it is. Yeah, I mean, we need some reform to our education system. You can't just like toss them the book, you know, which I'm not saying you would do. Um, it's uh, actually, this is kind of like a funny story. The, the doctor who works for us, this is totally separate. Okay. He was saying that we got to get the kids that LeBron James is like, they're going through like his academy. Once they go to Akron, we got to reach out to them to write for the Cleveland Review of Books. <laughs> then get that LeBron money. <laughs> I'm just joking. I'll edit that out. Um, well, it's, it's so important to be engaging with youth and to, to get youth voices in, in the picture because sometimes they see things in ways that we don't, you know? It's true. Like, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I um, you know, I study, I've studied in depth for like nine years now, all of like Western philosophy, continental philosophy, and if there's anything that I've learned, it's that very recently, that's not a place that you go to for capital T truth. It's where you go to understand why society developed the way it did. So like being for like Heidegger is just like not the way most countries, especially in the East, conceive of being. It's just like you talk about that because we've strayed from something. I remember my old professor, Jed Detman, RIP, said that everything changed once everything was translated from Greek into Latin. Because in the Greek, everything was like almost onomatopoeic, where like you say a word and it is that thing. Then when you translate that into Latin, then you create this semiotic like gap between the, the, the word and the, the object. And then the subject also, you know, gets trapped. Anyways, that's more to give a philosophical perspective on some of these things. I know, but that's, that's exactly the predicament of representation. Once you par start using words, you, um, you're danger you engage in the process of shaping reality in ways that it wasn't uh, shaped before. And yeah. yeah. That's the predicament. But you know what, that, it's, it's also so, there's something about that argument which is um, so post-lapsarian, you know, like. Lapsarian, what do you mean by that? The, uh, lapsarian means like the flood. So post-lapsarian meaning like, <laughs> it, it sort of takes for granted this idea that language is like a, a, a fundamental, divider between us and the world. And that's not always the case, you know? Um, but, you know, I think that what's interesting to me about continental philosophy, and as someone who grew up Catholic, you'll appreciate this. I think that there's some ways in which it, it, um, it often emerges out of a, it, it often replicates a certain kind of dynamic about human nature relative to reality, which is to say that, you know, you know, deconstruction, for example, post-structuralism often feels like a, an extension of, it either feels like a secularization of religious thought or, yeah. it, or it feels like it, it, it has missed something about the sacredness actually of, of language as well. So that they're trying to get back yeah 
Yeah. yeah well, or, or at least that the, they're so fixated on the, the split and the separation that they can't see the connection. Yeah. And I was reading some Walter Benjamin for this paper I'm writing right now. Um, basically, he writes the same essay twice in the first volume of his essays published by Harvard. Um, so one is called On the Mimetic Faculty, and one is called Doctrine of the Similar. So basically, okay. it talks about, you know, mimesis is like imitation and like play. And you see that because you see that at first, like in children, as they like, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a policeman or I'm a train. Like they're playing and they're right. imitating, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but there was something, there's something magic about that mimetic faculty. And um, Benjamin argued mm -hmm. that it's that mimetic faculty to like, you know, recognize yourself in the other like because a horoscope like astronomers you know used to be able to just people could just like look up at the stars and like understand the constellation you know mm -hmm. it just made sense you know right. and he used that metaphor as a way to look at language as something that we can't understand in that way mm -hmm. like with astrology but he says that like at certain moments that I don't know if it's deconstruction, but like with a certain amount of like focus and going at something with like a certain tempo, that mimetic comportment that is that thing in itself, like that the what the language is, the word it 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 becomes apparent again, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's similar to what you were saying. I don't want to get too off track, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that you you've articulated this uh, important. Um, return to the idea of mimesis as uh, play and as generative um, rather than, you know, I think that in some respects, some of post-structuralism and deconstruction is more in the Plato camp, you know, which is like yeah, yeah. That, that, the, the sort of the essential fundamental difference or divide between reality and language. I say some, one thing really quickly. Sure. Um, my favorite part of the Republic is like, so you know, like the noble lie, like you have to do that and then like keep everyone in the, in the city, not like, act like there's anything outside of it. So the norms seem like they're natural laws. Okay. There's like this one passage, I don't know which, maybe like book four, I don't know, where some dude who has like no, nothing to do with the city, he just shows up one day and he can like do backflips and do all this crazy shit that they never, that like they, like, like who can just do all these things that are like restricted within the Republic. Uh -huh. <laughs> They're just like, you can say for a day, man, but then get out of here. <laughs> like we, we can't even, we can't have you in this Republic. <laughs> Cause you'll get, you'll make everyone go crazy. Cause your presence is like, we can't take it. <laughs> like that has nothing to, then I could talk about Blood Meridian by by Cormac McCarthy going from there and the judge. Never mind. But uh, that's a great book. Have you read that? The Republic? No, Blood Meridian. Uh, no, I have not. Oh boy, good book. Um, I'm I'm open I'm open to represent uh, representations recommendations from you as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you know what? I think we've covered a lot of topics regarding form politics and we, we should end the podcast re revisiting what once again 
um, the importance of this book or the topics that you explore, how they can act on, inspire, or be in discourse with the present in Cleveland during this time? Sure. I mean, one of the things that seems really clear, I look as I look out on my neighborhood here in University Heights, is that um, although there's a lot of rhetoric about how we're all in this together, we do know that people are experiencing the pandemic in really radically different ways. And, um, you know, I'm in the middle class. I am doing my job from my office here in my house. I am taking no risks, but there are huge, there's a huge uh, social class um, service workers, A, who've lost their jobs, B, who uh, continue to work, but weren't provided equipment to keep them safe, and uh, um, C, people who are in the healthcare industry who are, you know, at risk in various ways. So, um, we got to expect on the Popeyes, man. The Popeyes on Clark Road and Clark Fulton blocks the streets. You can't get, you can't drive down Clark Fulton because everyone's getting Popeyes. We got right? to shut down the Popeyes from yeah. Popeyes chicken. Yeah. So yeah, and and the racial dimension of that is really evident and painful and tragic that it's impacting African Americans in in so much higher um, percentages than everyone else. And so in a way that this book, Shrapnel Maps, is also considering the ways in which there's a, a single place that's narrated and experienced so differently by two communities, two peoples. Um, and I mean, just to be totally frank and honest that, um, you know, Palestinian reality is so much um, impacted by Israeli hegemony and power. I mean, you can't get around it. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, you just have to look at the fact that um, even in Israel where uh, Israeli Arabs or Israeli Palestinians who have full citizenship come from neighborhoods that have fewer services, they, um, they, you know, have to, you know, pledge allegiance to, um, you know, to a, to a song that doesn't include them, to uh, their kind of second-class citizens. And, and that's not even including the people who have been living under military rule in the West Bank for 50 years. And if they don't stand for the anthem, if they, they're, they're screwed, right? They have to say it. Well, here's the thing. I think one of the things that's really tricky, and, and this is how it's about us. Like, I, you know, we can register a rational and thoroughgoing critique of Israel. Uh, but know that just basically all of this has to do with our own country as well. And so I don't want to um, simply displace my, our own injustice and project it onto there. Um, I mean, we can talk about like selling, we can talk about the dynamic of like, you know, like U.S. companies selling missiles to like Saudi Arabia, which Yemen, and then like Russia and Syria and like, Israel and America, blah, blah, blah. We can talk about that all we want, but it hasn't materially changed things, even though we should be talking about it. Mm, um, but yeah, but what we can do is like maybe doing what you're doing and think about 
constructive ways to right tell and the it, stories which can stories bridge the gap and can create a common mythos right for um a, a body you know put them right. under the same umbrella yeah yeah and i think that you know this idea of uh, bridging narrative is as i think part of the work of the book i'm trying to create a space where people can acknowledge uh, the other's humanity um, in ways that that they can do that without feeling as if it's taking away from their own humanity. And that's, that's why conflicts happen, is that you feel like even the acknowledgement of the other's humanity, their narrative, their reality, um, somehow is dangerous to you. That, that's, that's why the conflict happens. And, and so what happens if you create a space where there's, a, there's an opportunity for people to encounter each other in ways that, um, that decrease that pressure? For us, it was 2016 when we won the championship. Because, like, as you know, like, all, like, the redlining, like, if you're driving on Chagrin Boulevard to, like, you know, like, Woodland and stuff like that, the speed limit changes once you pass a lead from 35 miles per hour to 15 miles per hour. So everything is like strictly segregated in like, you know, yeah. designed to be that way. Right, right. Um, but it's the Cavs stuff brought everyone together, you know? Yeah. Uh, like, so maybe one day we can, I mean, you could compare Cleveland to Israel, Palestine right there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, I think there's two things at the same time. Like uh, there is the way in which the city came together to celebrate a common uh, victory, and yet there's also, but th there really isn't that kind of um, kind of opportunity, except when a, when when a peace deal could happen. When there's a kind of sense that a victory for both is, for each is a victory for both. And that's that's the only way that can happen. The thing about like in the, in Cleveland, though right, is that at the end of the day, people went back to their realities, their, the, the separation of neighborhoods, as you noted. Um, and so there's the level of the kind of imagined city, and then there's the real city. Yeah. Where people actually dwell. And um, yeah. yeah, so we're, we're always trying to figure out ways of making the imagined city the city where people actually live. And, yeah. and that, that's the struggle. How do we belong to each other in ways that um, that change us and that change the other and that that create greater equity justice the networks of society and the economy and like a local level um, actually on a side note yeah I used I used I worked for like two summers at this program called inner city tennis clinics where you know you have to deal with like you know it's just a good camp for the kids and there's education aspects and then there's like tennis yeah. aspects but the board of directors was like, we want five really good tennis players that we can show off to rich people. Then I'm just like, that's not the point of this. Mm -hmm. Like you're literally going in and like trying to assimilate them into your network versus like learning something from these people, mm -hmm. uh, not these people, but learning something from the people you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And so do you know like Barnhouse Journal? Yep. Yeah, yeah. so Kevin, I was head of administration and Kevin was working in the, comp the poetry component of inner city tennis clinics. Then we became friends and we both like, he founded it, but like the Barnhouse collective founded this journal. Mm -hmm. That beautiful thing came out of it because there was this 
interaction between myself and somebody from this community I'm designed to like kind of like like I'm I'm designed to like live in Hunting Valley you know what I mean that's how I was programmed maybe Shaker Heights I should have been a lawyer you know but for various reasons I'm I'm not um so there are there are ways to like and then Jason Harris you know Jason Harris yeah yeah we, I met Jason because he was reading he was reading um a book at Coventry Phoenix and you know I at that time I was gonna go to Europe for this program I'm doing now but I decided to like delay it for a year because of various situations and I was I was really hungry for like a strong intellectual community in Cleveland because I didn't see like the kind of scene that I saw in like New York or London and I wanted that in Cleveland so badly mm-hmm. and like I had a podcast back then and Jason and Kevin contributed because I met both of them just from random interactions and from that, like STEM, like basically like Barnhouse Journal, Cleveland Review of Books, this whole new thing. And now we're just trying to like, but like we have like 48 year olds, like on our editorial board, not even our advisors. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's a mat. It's like, if you like put your ego to the side and like what you're supposed to be to like the side and sacrifice that part of your ego that makes you feel like, you know, comfortable and safe with your social status and take those shots when you, when the shot is there, you can build something big. And um, this has nothing more to do really with your paper or I'd say, yeah, I'm just, I'm really inspired by all the things that you're saying. Well, thanks. Yeah. Um, and I think it's good work that you're doing. That's what we need to be doing in terms of, um, you know, like creating communities of of writing and 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 thinking that um break down these barriers for sure yeah people want a theory in society yeah and poetics and thinking about poetry um so let's sign off now okay okay um uh phil metris thanks so much for joining the crg podcast and um look forward to talking to you soon thanks great to see you Billy. And thank you to a for blessing us with these beats Peace out, everyone.